You hear about it constantly from Monday through Saturday, just about anywhere communication takes place, but you rarely hear about it in a church building. We call our program Truth Encounter because we are committed to going through every word of the Bible and seeking to expose its message to you. Today's discussion brings us to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1-9. through 9. The subject on the Apostle Paul's mind is sex, and he presents some inspired instruction about its use and abuse. Let's join our study leader, Dave Wordson, as he begins our study titled, God's Design for the Release of Passion. Satan is going to try to maximize illegitimate relationships and minimize legitimate relationships. Let me say that again, because I want you to get that idea firmly in your minds. Satan is constantly going to try to minimize legitimate relationships. What we're going to talk about today, the Christian church for about 1900 years has struggled with. The Christian church ever since about the second century has minimized the enjoyment and the pleasure and the thrill of marital sexual love. In fact, very early in the second century, it became fashionable for married couples to not have sexual relationships together. They would have brother-sister marriages. There even developed an idea of eschatological women. The idea here was that because we are in Christ, because we are positioned in the heavenlies with Christ, because we have become spiritually reborn, therefore our physical bodies are of no account. And this idea went one of two directions. We dealt with taking that idea, that false idea, and how the Corinthians used it to rationalize going to prostitutes. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul takes up the other side of that ascetic lie. And what's happening in the Corinthian church very possibly is that some of the husbands and wives have decided that it will be more spiritual if they don't have sexual relationships in their marriage. And so we have the idea of an eschatological marriage, a woman who keeps herself forever a virgin because that's more holy, that's more pure. And for about 1900 years, a very powerful idea in Christendom is that virginity is more pure than the enjoyment of sex in a marriage relationship. The amazing thing about all these different thoughts that tend to cause people to move away from the truth the scriptures anticipated all of these false ideas that could come into our lives. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we begin a chapter where in one sense we can read someone else's mail. In other words, the Corinthians have written to Paul in response to a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to them. They have misinterpreted some of the things that Paul wrote to them. And they've written back and asked him some questions. In chapter 7, probably not following the order of their letter, the Apostle Paul responds to one problem after another that they have raised in their letter. The problem that he begins with in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 7 is what is God's design for the release of passion? What Paul is going to deal with is a reality 
that sex is not a sinful thing. It is a bodily passion that we have, but it's much more than that. It's a very intimate relationship. And because of the intimate relationship and because of the deep meaning of sexual relationships, God has ordained for it to take place only, only in the marriage relationship. Some of the Corinthians have decided that that's not true. And so in their marriages, they're abstaining from one another. A movement has swept through the Corinthian church that for many of the married couples, it is more pure, it is more spiritual, if they just live together as brothers and sisters and not have any relationships. And so Paul begins in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It's very interesting if you look at all the different translations, the bias against sexual relationships comes out even in the translations of the Scripture. It's almost as if religionists are afraid to talk about this area of life. Many of us can say, you know, well, you know, we don't want to talk about those things. Some of you are raised in an environment where those things were never mentioned. Some of us have the idea, well, if we keep our kids completely in the dark about that area, somehow that will protect them. One thing I want you to realize as we look verse by verse through this section, parents, if you're a little bit embarrassed, ask your kids what they talk about at school. Ask your kids what they talk about in the locker room. Ask the kids in the public school what the jokes are about. And what we have to realize is that sex is being talked about. Turn on the tube. Ask your kids what they see. Say, well, I totally control that. Do you? What about when they go over to a friend's house? Something that Mary and I have become very well aware of. It's impossible to control as a parent everything your kids see. Every once in a while, our kids will get into discussion and we'll go, man alive, where in the world did you ever see that? Your kids are going to be exposed to what the world says about sexuality. You can count on it. We have very serious problems as the body of Christ in the sexual area. It's a struggle. It's a problem. We're not unlike any group of evangelical believers. Because I believe that one of Satan's most dominant attacks against the evangelical church has been to pollute what pure marital sexuality really is. And for centuries, the Christian church in worship has been afraid to teach the Bible. In fact, even in getting ready to share this week, I found myself saying, man, Paul, we really don't want it. We talked about it in Proverbs. They're going to say, well, there he goes again. Man, he probably has a problem in that area. You psychologists in that will say that. One of the things I'm committed to is that we've got to go through these books of the Bible. And we've got to take it subject by subject. And I want to share with you that I don't control the subjects that we share about. The text does. And so as we're going through a book, when Paul brings up an area, if we're studying Corinthians, then that's what we have to talk about. I want to share with you, I believe that that's the only way you're going to be free. That's the only way you'll be free from my tyranny. Because you might not be afraid of religious leaders' tyranny, but large sections of the world are under the hegemony, under the slavery of religious teachers that just teach them their own ideas.
and don't teach them about the freedom that's in Christ. That's why it's so important. I want to challenge you in your Christian faith. You need to read the text. You need to think about the text. You need to allow the text to change the way you feel about things, the way you think about things, because that's the only way you're going to enter into the truth. Paul begins, now as to the matters you talked about, the Corinthians raised a question about sex in the marriage relationship. They had a slogan. Paul begins a discussion a lot like the discussion he began last week with a Corinthian slogan. And that slogan was, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman. Now, like the slogan we talked about last week, it's partly true and partly not true. We've learned that outside the marriage relationship, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman. The Bible doesn't hedge on this. It doesn't make any exceptions. It says that outside of marriage, no sexual intercourse. That's it. That's what the scripture teaches. But in the marriage relationship, it's a totally different situation. There's freedom. There's joy. There's celebration. And so that slogan is partly true outside the marriage relationship, no. In the marriage relationship, yes. And so Paul begins to correct this misconception about the slogan. Look at verse 2, Paul's response. But since there's so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. Paul is saying that God's answer to the problem of sexual temptation is to get married and in that marriage to enjoy sexual relationship. Let each man have his own wife, stresses, let him or her both have full conjugal obligations met, full enjoyment of that sexual relationship. Then he says this in verse 3, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The body does not belong to her alone but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time. And the stress would be on a brief period of time so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. These verses have probably been misunderstood and there's so many different ways of approaching these verses about exactly what the concession is. It almost sounds as if the Apostle Paul is saying, well, it's better if you don't get married, but if you do, you know, that's second best and it's okay because of the problem of sexual immorality. I think that we need to be very careful as we look at 1 Corinthians 7 to understand that we are reading someone else's mail. And Paul is dealing with very specific, very specific questions that have been raised. As we begin studying 1 Corinthians 7, we all must understand that the Corinthian church was under severe persecution. They were under a time where the church of Corinth was being physically abused, which meant that some believers would even be killed. That colors the whole discussion. Because when we're under persecution, it's better not to enter into relationships 
which would cause, if, if a father was lost, it leaves children and a wife that need to be cared for. In other words, persecution in times of stress produce very unique settings in life. That colors this entire area. But I think that as we look at the specifics of what Paul is saying, underneath, one of the things we need to see is how he thinks through questions. How the Apostle Paul deals with life questions that are raised. And one of the things that I would like you to learn as we go through 1 Corinthians 7 is not only what Paul teaches, but how he arrives at what he teaches. Because it's not like Paul is just giving laws, just giving commands in 1 Corinthians 7. In fact, some of the advice he gives in 1 Corinthians 7, later on in 1 Timothy, he will counteract it. He'll give other advice. And for some people, they say, well, how do you know Paul's contradictory? One time he says this, the next time he says this. What those individuals fail to see is the way Paul thinks through problems, the way he thinks through life choices. And what I want us to see is the underlying stress of Paul's entire thinking. And the entire stress in 1 Corinthians 7 that we could just put underneath as the bedrock of it all is that as we make decisions about life, the question is not what will bring fulfillment to me, but what will bring praise and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, what will help my testimony in the world to shine brighter? What will enable me to be more effective for the Lord? What, one of the underlying things that Paul is saying throughout this chapter, and it, and it comes out in these verses, is that if you're born again, don't make radical changes in your life setting. In other words, one of the things he's going to say is, if you're married when you're saved, don't nullify your marriage. Some of the believers were tempted to do that. We're going to learn that as we talk about the problem of divorce. He's saying if you're married, when you receive Christ as your Savior, don't stop having sexual relationships. He's saying maintain the position where you are. And it's one of those chapters with a golden mean of don't make radical changes. Ecclesiastes says that there's danger in becoming over-religious. Some of us that are over-religious tend to become fanatical about things. And that fanaticism tends to cause us to get off the track about some very practical areas of life. 1 Corinthians 7 is a warning, picking up on the idea of Ecclesiastes, don't be over-religious, and says maintain a golden balance. And that discussion begins in verses 1 through 7 with the idea if you're married and you receive Christ as your Savior, then don't nullify the enjoyment of sexual relationships in your marriage. The very first thing I want to underscore in verses 2 through 6 is what we just read, that marital intercourse is a protection against immorality. I love the practicality of God's holy word. The Corinthians lived in an immoral city. Immorality was the norm just like it's the norm in our society. I want to share with you today 1 Corinthians 7 isn't really dealing specifically with unbelievers. It's dealing with you all that are believers and the way that we should raise our children. And the Bible's very realistic about the world that we live in. It says that when you, you men go to work, 
When you ladies go to work, there's going to be temptation. When you kids are in high school and you go to your high school, there's going to be temptation. And the scripture recognizes this. And it talks very clearly about it. And what Paul says is that outside of marriage, we're to abstain from such a relationship. But God's answer for that need in our life, if that need is very intense, very strong, then the need is for marriage. One of the things that we need to think very careful about is that in our society, that raises very serious problems because young people have to go so long. They have to wait so long to reach a point in life where they have the technical skills to provide for a living. For example, when in old Israel, when a boy was 13 years old, he was bar mitzvahed, he was recognized as a mature man within the community, and maybe a year or two later he would be married. Guess what? In old Israel, there was no adolescent problem because you were raising a family beside your dad, you know, plowing up the fields when you were just a young man. But in the modern world, we can't do that because it takes much longer to get to a place where we're technically capable to provide for a family. As believers, we need to face that. We need to pray intensely that we'll be able to maintain God's standard. As moms and dads, we need to get in there with our young people and help them to know very clearly how sexual passion works. And if they're going to have to wait, some of the very practical steps that they're going to have to take to protect themselves from getting into situations where temptation would be too strong and they would fall. The scripture is saying as parents, we must not let our kids be naive. We need to get in there and have personal family times, talks, where we recognize some of the pressures that our young people are under. And they need to know the information they need to know. They need to know how sexuality works. They need to know about the passion. And we need to help them. And I see many young people get in trouble because of naivety. And because mom and dad are naive. And because we're not recognizing the reality of the pressure towards immorality. We must also teach that God's answer to sexual passion is to get married. And so when our young people, if they're mature age, they're both believers, they both know Christ is their Savior, and they want to get married, we need to be strongly in favor of that. We need to overcome some of our parental desires to hold them in. And it's a hard transition for mom and dad to let a young couple go. And sometimes as parents, we want to we make sure they're going to make it. We want to be sure everything's going to be all right. Well, look back over your own life. How much did you have together when you were married? How much security do you have? And some of them think as parents, we're so concerned that our kids not go through some of the struggles that we went through that sometimes we create a situation that's very difficult for them, where there's very strong passions that are tempting them very severely, but we add the added pressure because we don't want them to get married. And Paul is teaching in this chapter, marriage is the place to fulfill sexual passion. And he's very realistic. It doesn't mean that all the kids should get married when they're 14. I think in our own society, most of the time, in fact, probably 99.9% .9 of the time, that's not going to be good advice. 
Teenage marriages do not have a very good record. It's also true in our society because of the sophistication of our age. It takes a lot longer to mature as far as emotions and as far as the ability to cope with life. But all I'm saying is that Paul is clearly saying to the church today, outside of marriage, we need to control our passions. No sexual immorality. Therefore, God has ordained for marriage to be the place where there can be enjoyment. Verses 3 through 4 talk about the mutual obligation. Now, a lot of times I have to talk to you about obligations that are not very, they're hard. But this is probably one of the only commands that the human race has done very well on. The very first command of the Bible is be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. It was given in Genesis chapter 1, before Genesis chapter 3, which is what a lot of the Christian church has forgotten, and sexual fulfillment in marriage, which can ultimately lead to the generation of children, is a command of God. It's an obligation. And Paul talks about it as an obligation. Now, those of you that are ascetic in the audience, that are legalists, you're not going to like that. Because you say, I don't like that. You know, sex is is a no-no. Man, my parents used to get all embarrassed when we talked about that. God doesn't get embarrassed at all. In fact, God tells you when you get married, when you say, I do, you're under an obligation to meet one another's needs. For those that are libertarian among us, you hate to even think about the idea of sex being an obligation. See, that's a horrible way to talk about it. But the idea is not so much that you keep telling your partner you're obligated to me. That's not Paul's stress in this passage. Paul's stress in the passage is, I am obligated to you. There's a big difference. So let's look carefully at what he says here. Verse Corinthians 7, verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. It's very interesting. In the ancient world, I would have expected this text to read, the wife must fulfill her marital duty to her husband. Because usually, in fact, some of you have been raised in county situations have had this said again and again. A dear girl will be there and she'll say, my mother told me I would have to endure it in the marriage. This ugly, dirty thing that I'll have to endure it. She's endured it for 40 years and that's how you arrive. Great thing to tell your kids. You know, a kid really has a strong self-image. When mom tells them from the time they were small, I, you got here by a terrible situation, you know, that I've got to meet this obligation to dad. It's kind of a mistake. He was away on a trip, and here you are. That whole negative spirit, I'm putting it in the extreme, but Satan works hard to get us to twist legitimate fulfillment. I want you to see something. The text does not say wives first Meet your husband's needs sexually. In the, in the ancient world, just as in the modern world, it was very common for the idea to be the men enjoy it, the women are obligated, and they endure it. That's totally an unscriptural idea. And that's why Paul says, husbands, you have a responsibility to meet your wife's need in that area. And that's very, very important. In fact, it shows you the equality of the value between a man who is a husband and his wife who is his wife. And Paul begins, contrary to almost all ancient thought, Greek philosophers would say, 
that it's the privilege of the man, it is the responsibility and the obligation of the woman. A Greek philosopher would write that, not the Holy Scripture. The Holy Scripture says that every one of the women that's a wife is valuable before God, and in the marriage relationship, her Heavenly Father says that her husband is obligated to meet her needs. Then he says this, likewise the wife to her husband. So the wife must also meet her husband's needs. I want to share this. In marital relationships, sex should never be a bargaining tool. It should never be used for manipulation. It should never, never be used to get your way. I shouldn't even have to say that, but many, many marriages use sex as a reward system. If you're a good boy, if you're a good girl, then you're rewarded. That is a sin. That is very, very sinful. The revealed Word of God says it's not, a, it's not something we can bargain with. It is an obligation, a debt that we owe to one another. And so Paul says that the, the husband and the wife must meet one another's need. Verse 4 stresses the way the golden rule applies in the sexual area. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. There's an amazing statement that Paul makes. He's saying that in the marriage relationship, we're to view our body as belonging to our partner which means that we think about using our body to meet our partner's needs and vice versa. Most of us in all situations in life, most of us in all situations in life are thinking about how to meet our own bodily needs. In fact, if you'll analyze the secular literature from cosmopolitan all the way on through, psychology today, Almost all the articles, just ask yourself, whose fulfillment is it talking about? And the basic idea will be, here's how to get the most fulfillment for you. And Americans are unbelievably into technique to get fulfillment for themselves. And lust is always about fulfillment for yourself. God's holy word says that our body does not belong to ourself in the marriage relationship. It belongs to our partner. And the thrust of Paul is that we are to do unto others what we would have them do unto us. We are to give of ourselves to bring pleasure to someone else. And an incredible thing, the ultimate high in sexuality is not by mutual selfishness, but by mutual giving. And that's why two believers that are following God's holy commands, two believers that are in love with God, that are listening to what the Word of God says, that are allowing the Word of God to free them up in this area, they are the individuals that will have the biggest highs in the sexual area and not the playboys and the big movie stars and everyone else. And we've got to believe that because it's the truth. Paul is saying that two believers that are married 
are to use their bodies to meet someone else's needs and to bring pleasure to someone else. And the amazing thing is that that's the greatest way that we have satisfaction ourselves. Now, there is one situation where Paul talks about where abstention is allowed. In other words, Paul says there is a situation where a married couple can decide not to have sexual relations, and that's in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. What Paul is saying is that there is a situation where a couple that's married can decide that for a brief period of time they're not going to have sexual relationships. He stresses these points. It must be by mutual consent. In other words, a husband can't say, well, for the next so many weeks, I'm going to pray, so we're not going to have sexual relations. A wife can't decide it on her own. Which once again stresses what I talked about earlier, that the Bible views both the husband and the wife as equal in value, as partners in this relationship. It needs to be by mutual consent. It needs to be for a limited period of time. A couple should decide that it's going to be a given time period. They should decide it's going to be a limited time period. It needs to be for the purpose of prayer. I think it might be legitimate to say it might be for a spiritual purpose. In the first century church, there is evidence that at times there would be special devotion to prayer, which is a good practice. In other words, a couple might decide that they're very burdened about an area of life and they want to pray about it. And so this couple decides that for that period of time, they will devote themselves to prayer. And Paul says, that's okay. But then he says they need to come together again. Why? Because if they stay separated for a long time, then we're going to go back to chapter 6 immorality is going to come in and there's going to be a ruining of the marriage relationship because sexual passion will take over and rather than it being met in the legitimate area of a marriage, it will be met in the illegitimate relationship with a prostitute or in extramarital affairs. The amazing thing about it is that's exactly what was happening in the Corinthian church. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 7 are probably related. Probably what was happening was that some of the husbands and wives had decided they were too spiritual. They didn't need sex and marriage, so they abstained. They had brother-sister relationships, no sexual fulfillment in marriage. Then they went on to say, well, my body is not that important, and I have sexual needs, so then they would go to a prostitute. In other words, what I'm trying to bring out is that some of the hanky-panky that we've seen in the church is not new. And one of the things that we need to do is we need to teach the Word of God because maybe we taught the Word of God clearly, we would free people up enough to realize that God wants them to think through what's happening in their life. God wants them to think through what their desires are and what's happening deep in their internal man. And one of the major things that I want all the little children to get all the teenagers to get, all the adults to get, not only in the sexual area, but in every area of life, Satan is always trying to get you to turn away from legitimate enjoyment, legitimate pleasure, legitimate good things to do with your body. 
and to get you to enjoy it in his kingdom illegitimately. That's why church becomes a rigid place. It's why church becomes a place of the nodes. Don't talk about this there. That's not holy. Don't deal with that subject there because that isn't right. That's not godly. That's not really spiritual. And so in the church, in relationship with God, there's all kinds of areas that we don't talk about. And we don't have enjoyment in that area. We don't have pleasure in that area. And then underneath this, Satan has a whole onslaught of seduction and temptation, getting people to enjoy his pleasures illegitimately. And the sad thing about that is that it ruins your career, it ruins your marriages, it ruins life. Underlying this passage is a marvelous idea that God is good, that God has given us our bodies, and God has given us a plan, and God says that this plan is very, very good. Don't it ever let it be said that it was taught in Midlothian Bible Church that sex is an evil thing. None of our young people should grow up with the idea, no, 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 no. They should be brought up with the idea of wait, 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 because of all the joy and all the pleasure that God has in this very special area. And if you're not enjoying pleasure in that area as a married couple, please get help. Please go to counseling. Please get help. Don't coast along. Maybe some of you were hurt when you were younger because Satan uses terrible things to pervert and to blot and to mar what I'm talking about today. And some of you were hurt when you were very young. You were abused by sinfulness. Many times the sin of somebody else. And many times it's still hanging on in your marriage relationship. And you're not having the freedom and the joy. And you can't think about it as being good. Please work that through. Please allow the Spirit of God to help you to face those feelings so that it won't keep sinning against your own legitimate relationship. And I pray that all of our young people will hear very clearly what we're saying and they'll save themselves for the time when God says it will be an obligation for you to enjoy relationship. Nani Lewis, Kim's grandmother, is one of the greatest examples in my own life here in Midlothian. And many of you have heard me say, I remember when Papa Lewis went into a coma, we were in the hospital. And Nani came up to me and she just grabbed hold of me and she gave me a great big hug and she just sobbed. And then she said this. You know, she didn't say, well, I'm not going to ever hear him pray again. She didn't say, well, I'm not going to ever be able to be by him in church again. She said this. In her 70s, she said, I'll never be next to him in bed again. What a great statement. What a fantastic statement of what a marriage they had. And I had a whole day I spent because Nani was so close to me and it was such a difficult time after all those years of marriage. I just spent a whole day with Nani. And she told me what I've often told many of you, but I'm going to tell it again because it underscores what Paul wants us to understand this passage. Nani told me on their wedding night after they said their vows to one another and that very nerve-wracking time 
for every young married couple. She said that when she came out, Papa grabbed her and got her down on her knees. She didn't know what was going to happen then. Got her down on her knees beside the bed. When you're a young wife, you don't know what you've gotten into at this particular point. He put his arm around her and he started to pray. And he said, Dear God, we've just committed our lives to one another. We've made our, our marriage promises together. And we are now nearing the consummation of this relationship. And I ask your richest blessings upon our enjoyment of marriage. And that's the way they began their first night together. Now there is a man and a woman who understood what I'm sharing about. And the incredible thing about that is that they were brought up in that supposed puritanical time of early Texas. But the Word of God gave them freedom. And that's what I covet for you because God can give you joy and pleasure in your 70s if you listen to what I'm telling you. I got a couple mad at me at the marriage retreat because I insinuated that it was incredible that a couple in their 70s had such a good time. And that's not at all what I was trying to say. I was just trying to talk about the joy that 1 Corinthians 7 is talking about. So what is Paul stressing? The Corinthian slogan, partly right, partly wrong. As so many things are in life. He's saying outside the marriage, we need to listen to 1 Corinthians 6. Be very careful about immorality. But inside the marriage, we need to realize that a true enjoyment of marital intercourse will protect us against immorality. There needs to be no manipulation. There needs to be mutual giving in that relationship. Abstention is only allowed by mutual consent for a short period of time to pray, and then we need to be reunited again so that Satan will not tempt us.